Okay, so today, welcome, Alan. Thank you so much for, for coming for an uh, entitled podcast. Um, just a kind of a, a small introduction. I know Alan for, I think, four years now. Four years, Nicola, yeah. Four, four years. And uh, and Alan always been a kind of, a, and from my point of view, a kind of a mentor in the sense, just because of the amount of knowledge that you have. I mean, you've been, you've been, you've been in, in your industry for over, 30 years now. Over 30 years now, and the And it's different because I think I speak with a lot of people, but it's incredible to meet someone that is, has the ability to continue learning every single day. And every single time I have a conversation with you, I I learn something new. Yeah. It, 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 that, that, I'm serious, that's from the deep of my heart. Yeah. So that's, I'm, I'm very grateful to have you in the podcast today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm honoured to be here and um, I've always found that sharing wisdom, sharing things you learn is a great way to build relationships and that's why I do it. Oh, sounds amazing. Alan, tell me a little bit more about you. How did you go to the position? Because 30 years in the same industry and being kind of at the mm. top at, at your level like you've mm. been for the last 30 years, it's not something easy to do for... So. No, that's right. So, I mean, originally I got into into the law. One of my family members was a lawyer, and uh, it was a general practice lawyer. He would do crime, he would do matrimonial family law, he would do wills and probate. So he floated the idea past me. Um, so I went to study at university. I didn't actually go to work for him. I went my own way. And originally when I qualified, I was a corporate lawyer. I was helping buying, sell companies and businesses, quite high level, some big businesses, some big local businesses in the Northwest, one of which sold for nearly 20 million. I dealt with that. Um, but I also had this specialization I wanted to do, which was employment law. And so about 25 years ago, I specialized in employment law, okay. mainly helping employers in how to be compliant with all the rules and regulations and not end up in a, an employment tribunal. Mm-hmm. Or if they did end up in an employment tribunal, how to get them out of there as fast as possible, as fast as possible. without people having to go on the witness stand and suffer giving evidence. Um, but sometimes I would help individuals. And in fact, I have a practice now where I have a broad range of businesses and individuals that I will act for, which is unusual. Some lawyers specialise in one side or the other. I don't. I, I will act for individuals. And I will also act for businesses as well. Um, and then about... Let's see, just over three years ago, I set up my own consultancy practice, which, which consults into a firm in central London. The advantage of that is everything that goes with the traditional um, back office law firm I've got already done for me. Mm-hmm. I just work on the front end as a freelance lawyer, bringing in the work, doing the work. If I've got too much work, I pass it over to colleagues and we share fees on, on it. So that's how that works. And it's, it's a much more flexible model to work. And it's becoming an increasingly popular model. There are many, many firms growing up of this type now. Uh, And that's how I got to where I got to. But I also used a lot of networking and building relationships and helping others to develop. Um, And then there was a point in my life where I learned that um, you really need to develop yourself, work harder on yourself Mm -hmm. than you do on your job. I think it was Jim Rohn that said that. (laughs) And, you know, it's, it's such wisdom because you can work on yourself by listening, listening to audios, reading books, listening to recommended books, surrounding yourself either physically or with the things that you listen to and study with influential people, people who've got wisdom to pass on, and that's how you grow quickly. 
do you feel like uh, that self-development that you've been learning, not just in terms of your profession, but your life experience, we also kind of connect together and help you to become a better, yeah. uh, a, a better solicitor? Yeah, a better business person as well as a better solicitor. Some of the some of the skills that we learn are transferable into into legal services and winning legal work, but also it helps you better at building relationships. Um, helps you deal with your family better mm-hmm. you know how to communicate better that's one of the big areas that I've focused on you know words are so important the words that we say the words that the other person hears they don't always hear what you expect they might hear so you've got to be aware of how are they responding to what you're saying do I need to change what I say um, and I think you need to do this to distinguish yourself to set yourself apart do you feel like uh communication as you mentioned because you mentioned that communication is it, it's quite interesting what you mentioned in terms of sometimes you might communicate one thing but the person you might be hearing a different thing Absolutely. and I feel like even through if you don't mind me sharing as well through previous conversations that we have sometimes you might look at, at a contract or you might look at document that's just the way the word is being positioned or the way the word has been written it changes completely the the meaning of it so absolutely well in, in the strict legal sense that you know uh, contracts and the way that a, a clause is written is key and if there's a dispute about it it ultimately could end up before a judge in court and the judge will decide what the interpretation of that particular clause or paragraph is um, but also uh, when you're dealing with employees if I'm drafting a handbook for example for for a company for its employees the way that it reads reflects on the culture of the company as well. You might not need to go to law over this. You might not need to have a dispute about a particular part of it. But there's a there's an industrial relations, uh, or, sorry, industrial relationship being set up. Depending on how that reads, it's got to be clear. It's no point using complicated language for an employee to read. Otherwise, they're just going to shut the handbook and never read it again because yeah. it doesn't mean anything to them. So, just from the point of view of industrial relations. It's important, but it's also important from a legal point of view that it would stack up under scrutiny from a judge, that it would do what you want it to do, that it would give you the protection that you you want to give it. And we're going to come on a little later to a little niche area Mm -hmm. that I like to focus on and how important it is that clauses say what they should say. But most of all, the point is, does it communicate what we want it to communicate? Is it understood? That's the most important thing. Got you, got you. That, no, that sounds that sounds good because I think communication is key. I mean, uh, I think it's Jim Rohn that mentions that as well in terms of the fact that you can have two different persons that do exactly the same thing, but one that has a better ability to communicate considerable, it will be able to make considerable more money and it's going to be able to be considerable more successful just because the way he communicates is 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 more fluent and is is more clear as well. Absolutely, and then you study, there are different personality types. People hear different things depending on which personality type you're dealing with. Or if you you take um, Paul McGee's book, Sumo, Shut Up and Move On, he talks about the beach ball effect where we're both looking at the same beach ball, but we see different things. I see yellow, white, blue, white. Mm -hmm. You see red, white, green, white. We we see different things and we're looking at the same object. Once you realise that, it changes the way you communicate about things because you realise that somebody else might not be getting the same interpretation that you are. So it's really important. When do you feel like it was the first time in your life that you realised that communication was very important? Yeah. Do you know what? I'd, I'd probably already been qualified as a lawyer for about five or six years before I realised just how important communication was. You take a lot of things for granted. 
until you start studying these things and you, you say to yourself, no, I'd never thought of it that way. And, and you try different things, different styles of the communication, different phrases, and you see that some things work and some things don't. And that's how you, that's the process of constant self-improvement. What was the, the book? I mean, I know that you, mm. you, you mm. love books as well, and, and I think mm. it's something that we share a mm. passion in terms of gaining knowledge. What do you feel like it was the book that you read that really had a big impact on you? I think I, I liked the book Resistance is Useless by Jeff Birch. It's not one we've discussed before. Um, okay. It's about really, when you, when you peel back the layers on it, it's about selling using stories. That's really what Jeff's talking about. Resistance is useless. So, in other words, if the communication is so strong, it's pointless trying to resist. <laughs> wow. That, that, yeah, <laughs> it, it's a wonderful book, but it's a, it really he's talking about st storytelling. How did I come across that book? I met a sales lady, and she said, I've got a huge library at home, about 60 to 100 books on sales. And I said to her, what's, what's your favorite book? She said, that one. Wow. And so I, I simply bought it off her recommendation. Well, I'm going to be reading that book yeah. because I think I think that's powerful. And yeah. I mean, from the point of view of storytellers as a filmmakers, mm. uh, I mean, we always argue that storytelling is something that didn't change. The principles of storytelling didn't change. No, it's not changed. The medium and the way it's being formatted might change, yeah. but the principles are still exactly the same. Yeah. Do you feel like uh, even in your lines of work as well, you utilize storytelling quite a lot? Yes, I think sometimes you find a legal concept is difficult for a layperson to understand. So you might use a story to, to as a metaphor to explain what it is, and then they suddenly say, "Yes, I, I see that." So, but we're, we're hardwired to listen to stories, aren't we? We can't help it. If somebody says, "I've got a good story," you just want to listen, don't you? Yeah, and I mean, I think another thing about storytelling as well is you can you can't say no to a story because it's still a story you can't say exactly. you know what I mean because if you ask a question the person can say yes or no but if you're just telling a story the person is forced to kind of just it's follow just a story. the story yeah yeah they got they can't help follow yeah. and what they do is they actually unwittingly place themselves in the story mm -hmm. you know and um, and and that means you've captured their attention and and also the resistance is down that they're, they're just listening to a story you're not trying to sell them anything people don't like to be sold to yeah. they like to buy they don't like to be sold to so if they feel they're not being sold to they have more chance of absorbing your message yeah brilliant in terms of your lines of work mm. as well, and talking in terms in terms of you mentioned that in your past you you are business to be sold for a big mm. amount of money as well, and mm. then you decide to specialize and uh, and uh, and employment solicitor as mm. well. Um, what moved you to to actually make take that decision and start becoming more specialized? Well, I'd I'd done a quite a bit of employment law in my training. I did two years of training to become a solicitor after I'd already got a degree and passed my law society finals. And um, I showed a flair for it. So so later and early in my career, say four years in, I started to do quite a bit more of it. And a partner in the particular firm I was with at the time said, you're good at that. Okay. You should specialize it. And that's what I did. I decided, another partner thought it was perhaps pigeonholing yourself was the way he said it and mm -hmm. it wasn't perhaps such a good idea but looking back it's been a good decision because it's it's a niche area it affects all businesses if they've got employees it affects individuals if they're working or they're about to be exited from a job or they're looking to get into a new job and they want you to look at the contract 
when times are good, people are recruiting and taking on staff. When times are bad, they're laying off staff. So there's always something to do with employment law that's going on. Uh, and so it's quite interesting, and you never stop seeing new situations. Yeah. You think you know it all, and then another situation comes up, and you realise that you don't. God. So, yeah. I mean, without, I know that it's probably you, you need to, to mm-hmm. keep private information, mm. but without sharing the details, mm. is there any story that really amazed you or make you kind of question, is that something that you saw and you realize, wow, I wasn't expecting to see something like that? Let me think of an unexpected situation. Um, I, I remember once when um, a company, a Bolton-based company, okay. uh, which shall remain nameless, but they asked me to if I could help them exit one of the two joint uh, MDs, mm. uh, which I did. We managed to come to a, a solution to sort of reach a settlement, and this person was paid a deal to go mm-hmm. because he was really holding the company back. But also his son worked there, he was sales director. Okay. So... We did the same with him eventually, say a few months later. So the two, father and son, were exited from this business. And I didn't realise how important that was. It was only some six months later when the client rang me and said, I'd just like to say thank you because by doing what you did, you saved our business. Wow. We were the world's largest manufacturer in this particular product and we were going off a cliff because of the, the strategy, the direction these two people were taking us in. And you saved our business. Wow. So, so that surprised you because sometimes you just don't realise what impact you can have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they felt they were really being held back, and now they were free, and they could they could develop the business in the direction they wanted to. So that that was that's something that springs to mind. Yeah, but that's... but also other things. Um, I think human nature, the the way sometimes it's willing to be greedy, mm-hmm. and perhaps steal, take what doesn't belong to it. Uh, I remember not too long ago, last couple of years, I acted for a company where somebody was sending customer lists from the email work address to his private email address and downloads of specifications of other products. There was a lot of chemical formula in these products. And he basically could have targeted £20 million of turnover of clients. So we discovered this. Uh, I needed evidence there, so I just instructed um, an IT expert forensic IT expert to examine the computer, the hard drive, and do a report. And he was able to produce a report that showed every email, the split, the second it had been sent, mm-hmm. what was attached to it, and all the rest of it, which meant that we could then interact with the individual in correspondence and say, here's the report, mm-hmm. judge for yourself what you've been doing. Right. <laughs> if you continue with this, you'll be sued for all damages, etc., uh, and we'll injunct you. To, we'll, get, we'll get a high court injunction to stop you doing what you're doing. And he had to back off and sign everything we wanted and stop. So I think that's a common theme. It's something I'm going to talk about later. It's a common theme where people will try for their own interests to do something that effectively damages their employer's business. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see that because there's an old saying, if you want to have the biggest building in town, there's two ways of doing it. You can build the biggest building, or you can tear down all the other big buildings, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> that's so, that's, so there's three ways, of setting up a, three ways of growing a business. You can grow organically, go out and win clients. You can acquire another business that's already got lots of clients. Or you can be an employee with influence who leaves the business and steals the clients. Wow. Or if you're a business owner, you can look for employees who you can target to do that. So they come and join my business, bring those clients with you. Now, many businesses are exposed to that without even realizing. Wow. And it's, and it's quite powerful what you mentioned as well, because I mean, I think 
if it's not my mistake, I won't be to that, but in addition, the, the one of the definitions of business is, is a group of people working together, yeah. if it's not my mistake. Yeah. And the, it just shows the importance of people, people working and, and the business and kind of being, I use the analogy with my team, that being in the same boat and going in the same direction. Being in the same boat, rowing in the same direction, all pulling together, Yeah. but trusting each other. Yes. And and where there is no trust, the situation I've just given an example of is something that can, can yeah. easily happen and yeah. does happen and will happen every day, every week, up and down the country, around the world. What do you think is the steps that maybe business owners can take to yeah. protect themselves but without yeah. creating maybe a bad feeling with the employees yeah. as well? I mean, what they need to do is have really strong provisions in the contract, particularly at the start. So we, we these are known as restrictive covenants or post-termination restraints. In other words, when somebody's left the business, we want to make sure that they don't take our customers, disclose our information, because they could destroy all the good work that we've done to build the business to this state. Now, during employment, there are certain implied terms that are in contract. They might not be written, but there's a duty of good faith. An employee has a duty of good faith towards his or her employer. But once employment has ended, that doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. um, so unless there are strong provisions in the contract and provisions that work, and many that I've seen don't work, and by that I mean a judge looking at it, a high court judge looking at it would say, I'm not prepared to enforce this clause because it's not clear what it says, the precise meaning of it isn't clear to the individual or it's too wide to be enforceable, it's too long, you're expecting this person to not approach your customers for three years and I think that's too long, you don't need that length of protection. So that, that, that's, the, that's the issue. Now most employers have heard of these things called restrictive covenants and a lot of them think it's just a myth, they're not enforceable. Well that's not true. I could produce a list as long, longer than my arm well, of, the, okay. of the decisions that have enforced these covenants, but they've got to be properly drafted. And um, there tend to be five types of these sort of restrictions. The first one, and the most draconian one, is one that says, you won't compete with me. You won't go and work for a competing business, let's say for 12 months, mm -hmm. in the UK. Mm -hmm. Now, that might seem overly restrictive, but in some industries and with certain individuals, depending on their influence and depending on how much notice they're entitled to on the contract and their seniority and how many people they supervised, some courts may be prepared to enforce clauses like that. As though, But it's quite restrictive because the individuals are saying, well, I can't work in this industry in the UK then now for yeah. 12 months. But that, that sometimes can be enforced provided it's drafted properly. One down from that is the non-solicitation covenant, which says... You will not solicit, you will not encourage clients that you've dealt with, say, in the 12 months before you've left. If you've had any, any contact with them, you will not, for six months, let's say, after you've left, you will not approach them. You will not encourage them to come and do business with you. Now, that's the protection the employer really wants. He just wants to keep his current clients safe that this individual has been exposed to. The business has invested in training this individual. It pays his travel expenses and he goes and sees these clients and he builds up strong relations with them, often better relations than the founder, the owner of the yes, business has. Yes. And that's the real danger that you want to protect. Now, as I said, first of all, if there are no covenants in the contract, 
that say that an employee cannot do that, they are free to approach all your clients the day after they've left, and there's wow. nothing you can do about it unless they've taken a specific list and are trawling through a list. That's your property. That's confidential information. But many many clients have the many many employees have the customers number in the in the mobile phones or they're linked to them on LinkedIn or social media in some way. So or even if they can't remember the number, they know the name of the business and they just look it up on Google and ring them. Yeah. Uh, again, without that covenant, it's fatal. And you could. I, I go back to Pareto. You've heard, of, we've talked about Pareto's law mm-hmm, before. Yeah, so Pareto is obviously the Italian from hundreds of years ago who did a study that showed that I think it was 80% of the land was in 20% of, of, of the hands of the yeah. country. So the 80% of the wealth was owned by 20% of the people. But then if you study Pareto, it seems to apply to many things. So in a business context, we tend to find that 80% of our turnover comes from 20% of our clients. Yes. It might be 75, 25, it might be 70, 30, but you get the picture. It's, it's as a minority of clients are responsible for most of our turnover. Yes. Now, if you read the book called 80-20 Sales and Marketing by Perry Marshall, which I think I've referred to you yes, before, yeah, it's an old book now. Still many people haven't heard of it. Perry Marshall was great with this because he took 80-20 and really delved into it and realised there's another 80-20 in the 20 at the top. Wow. So okay. of that 20% of clients are responsible for your turnover, if you analyse that, there's probably just 20% of that 20% it does. which is responsible for it. So what that actually means mathematically is 4% of your customers are responsible for 64% of your turnover. Now keep the math simple, you've got 100 customers and four of them account for nearly two-thirds of your turnover. If you lose one, two, three, or all four of those top four, you're out of business. Yeah, you're out of business. Two-thirds of your turnover's gone. So what are employers doing to protect that 4%? The answer in most cases is nothing. The answer in some cases is they're cobbling together some clauses they've copied off the web or off somebody else's terms that they think work but they don't because they're not worded properly. And I'm, I'm going to explain in a minute what the courts will look at to, to decide whether something is worded properly. So the third type of restriction is a non-dealing covenant because the problem is you leave the business, you start dealing with the customers, and I mm-hmm. say, hands off, you weren't supposed to solicit customers. And you say, but Alan, they approached me. Yeah. I didn't approach them. So a non-dealing clause gets rid of that problem. You want, you want to deal with that customer whether or not they approached you. Again, the courts don't like these non-dealing. If there's a non-solicitation clause in there, they think that's enough. But if you can persuade a judge that, look, we can't police this non-solicitation. We don't know whether Nikolai did the approaching or they approached him. So we need this non-dealing and they will uphold them. The fourth type of restriction is to prevent you from taking key staff. So you could leave, take another influential person with you and you... That my business is wrecked. The two key people who were my best employees that were building my business have gone and I've got no business left. Yes. So again, so you want to put a restriction, Nikolai leaves and we stop him taking the other key person as well. So uh, we, we often see these non-poaching clauses as we call them. And then finally, we're tending to see now, there's a trend to see more often clauses that stop team moves where you hold sectors of people go together. One will go first and then the others will be poached by them and then the whole it just wrecks the business Mm -hmm. now I think what it's um, the important thing to note is whenever these clauses are challenged in a court the first thing the judge will say is 
I don't want to enforce these clauses because they're in what we call restraint of trade. They stop people freely going about their business. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. And that's the general proposition. So the first thing a judge is going to say to himself is, I don't want to enforce these. You show me, Mr. Employer, Mr. Former Employer, you show me why I should enforce these clauses, why they are reasonable. So the burden is on the employer trying to show a judge, persuade a judge that these are reasonable. So what do they look at? The first thing they look at is what the court what the court thinks the covenant actually means. Is it clear mm-hmm. what I'm asking you not to do? If it says you won't do business with any clients that you've done business with in the 12 months before you left. Well, if my business is selling cars and I'm stopping you doing any business with those customers. That's not. Why can't you sell them toilet rolls or pens? It doesn't affect my business. So a court would look at that and say, well, that literally means you can't do any business with those clients. The meaning is too wide. I don't want to enforce that. So you've got to be very peculiar and specific about what it is you don't want them to do. So they look at the meaning. Once they've decided what the meaning is, they, they ask, does it protect a legitimate business interest? What is it? What is the business interest of the employer that you're trying to protect? Are you trying to protect the customer base? Are you trying to protect the, the confidentiality, the goodwill? What is it you're trying to protect? And if, if there is a legitimate business interest there to protect, they will protect it. The next thing they say is, is it reasonable? And that sometimes involves considering the geographical extent of a clause. So mm-hmm. it might say, if somebody left your business, Nikolai, they can't set up within three miles in a, in a similar competing business. That might be held to be reasonable. But if it said 30 miles, which wiped out Manchester and perhaps Liverpool or wherever, they might say that's totally unreasonable. You don't need that length of restriction. Mm-hmm. But in that situation, just mm. a quick question, because, mm. I mean, mo- most of the business are digital nowadays. Mm. So they can, I mean, we do business sometimes with companies that are based in Australia. In the world. In the world. Yeah. So how that, how that fit as well? Well, a judge would have to take that into, co- into consideration in, in, discern- in determining the question of reasonableness. He might find that it's reasonable to have okay. a, a geographical, uh, a worldwide geographical extent for a short period though, probably a shorter period. Mm-hmm. So for example, the fashion industry changes so much. If you were a designer working for a fashion company in London and a, a restriction said you won't work in a competing business for six months, well, fashion changes in weeks. Yeah. Wow. So, so uh, a court might say, well, do you know anything longer than six weeks is just not enforceable. And so... Can you see the difference depending on industry, sector, individual? There is no one-size-fits-all here, which mm-hmm. is why you can't get a standard clause off the shelf and apply it to any business. It needs to be tailored to the business and the individual that you're seeking to impose these restrictions on. Is that any main reason that will takes, you know what I mean? Because I know that some employees might want to leave because they want to just build something or they might be selfish or could be different reasons, but... Is there any trend, any maybe advice in terms of business? One, for protection, and two, maybe in terms of the work environment, improving work environment in order to prevent themselves. Yeah, so obviously the more an employee enjoys working a particular business, the less likely to leave. And one of the best ways of of making them sticky in that sense so that Mm -hmm. they don't leave is to offer them some sort of equity stake in the business. Mm -hmm. If they've got a shareholding interest in the business... Got you. Yeah, yeah. They own part of the interest that you're seeking to protect. Makes sense. So, so if, if you can give as many incentives as possible so that somebody wants to stay in a business, this situation simply isn't going to arise. Got but this you. will arise where, well, they might fall out with management, they might not enjoy working there, or they might just simply get greedy. <laughs> yeah. And we see it a lot in the recruitment sector. 
Okay. Recruiters can earn good money if they're good at placing people, the commission can pay well. Gotcha. There comes a point when an individual will turn around and say to themselves, why am I earning this for somebody else? Why am I only getting this amount of commission? I could have 100% of that recruitment fee mm-hmm. if I set up my own business. And so you see a lot of the cases that we see, a lot of the injunctions are, are applied for and granted, not always granted, but a lot of the applications are made in the recruitment sector where people have just literally oh. gone off. Because what do you need to do to set up as a recruiter? Just an office or a phone number? Yes, that is, is, is not required a massive investment. Not much is required yeah. for investment. So it's the contacts that you need. So once they've built relationships with companies who require their services, they'd like to keep working for those companies afterwards, but on their own or for themselves. And so we, we, do, we do see this sort of thing. So for example, you, you said, uh, come across something. What have I come across that surprised me? We came across something last year where an individual oh. had set up his own company in his father's name. Okay. Uh, which was obvious because it was the same surname as his. So once we delved into it, we found it. But for over a year, he'd been running a separate side business and his father's name, diverting business to that before we found out about it. And then went wow. for an injunction because he would. We wrote to him, first of all, and he wouldn't back off. Wow. So we went for an injunction. Yeah, and it's surprising what people will do. So he was actually stealing. He was already stealing the clients and been doing it for a year. And then when he when the time was ready, he jumped and started. And as soon as he moved, the company smelled a rat and looked into it. And they found this company, they did some company searches and found this particular company. Wow. How do they identify it as well? Is there any client that maybe mentions something? I think I think what they did is they noticed a reduction in, in orders from one particular client or two clients. Mm-hmm. And that made them a bit curious about what was going on. Uh, often there's that trust relationship there yeah. and employees don't look. Um, the most important thing is to have these covenants in place. There are risks. Um, you might have a watertight set of restrictions, but you might do something as an employer, which means you've fundamentally or seriously broken the contract gotcha. and the employee leaves in response. For the most simple example is you reduce somebody's salary, you mm-hmm. break the contract, or you lower the status, demote them or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you make a serious change without their agreement, that's a breach. The employee can turn around and say, I'm accepting that as a repudiation of the contract. It's finished. I'm off. You've constructively dismissed me. You've forced me out. Mm-hmm. In that situation, the employer cannot then rely on the restrictions. They're gone. They fall flat on the face. Gotcha. So that's important. It's also important as well. If you introduce restrictions during the life of a contract, so you've had somebody you might have worked for you for two years, you realise that he or she is becoming quite a key influencer mm-hmm. and you've heard from somebody like Nikolai or Alan that they should be having these protections in their yeah. <laughs> contract. So Alan puts the, the restrictions in. Unless you've given some sort of consideration, something in return for those restrictions, they might not be enforceable. Okay. Because you've changed the contract and you haven't given any, you know, even if it's only a thousand pounds or five hundred pounds, just some consideration in return for the restrictions. So, so that's it has a, to be reasonable. Yeah. Well. So as well as acting for businesses, I also act for employees who are on the receiving end of a complaint letter saying okay. you're in breach of covenant. So in that situation, we're looking at ways of attacking the clauses. Do they work? Have they fallen away? How did you come to leave your employment before you got this letter from the employer? And they'll say, well, actually, something was, there was a breach. There was a serious breach, and that's why I left. And you say, ah, well, that puts a different light on things. We don't have to worry about what the clauses say. They just can't rely on them. Wow, that's, that's, that's intriguing. It's very that's interesting. Intriguing. Yeah, it's very interesting because it changes completely the what it, what is written. In Absolutely. Well, it, it negates what's written. You can ignore it because it, it wouldn't... The theory is... An employer cannot break a contract and then rely on the same contract. contract yeah. 
<laughs> you want balance, yeah. You can't have it both ways. Yeah, so it makes sense. It's a very old principle going back to a case called general bill posting from about 1903. It's a really old case. But there have been several cases since that that have honed in on that principle, and it still holds good. Mm-hmm. So, so really important. Um, here's a simple example. Uh, you come to terminate an employee's employment, you're supposed to give them their notice, their contractual notice entitled. It might say to terminate this contract, you've got to give the employee two months' notice. Mm-hmm. You decide that you don't want them there for the two months, so you decide to dismiss them and just pay them a lump sum of two months' money instead. Gotcha. Okay? Now, technically, there's no loss, there are no damages. The employee can't claim damages there because they got the money. Yes. Yeah. But there is no clause in this example in the contract that says you're allowed to pay a payment in lieu of notice. So by making a payment in lieu of notice and not allowing them to work their notice, you, the employer, have broken the contract. Gotcha. Follows on from that, but because you've broken the contract in that way, you've possibly also, in fact almost certainly, you've negated your restrictive covenants. Gotcha. Just by paying them them up front, you've just waved by to your covenants because your contract didn't say you're allowed to do that. So we need to make sure the contract says, as well as... I have to give you two months' notice to terminate your contract. I can, at my option, if I wish, pay you in lieu of notice. If it doesn't say that, it's a breach. And the knock-on effect is bye-bye to the covenants. So, again, another area that we look at. So wow. quite quite complex. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite complex and interesting as well because it's, it's literally small, small Little things. Small, little things, little, little details that will make... Little details that, that have a dramatic effect and, and people don't realise. Wow, wow. I mean, if a, a business, I mean, you already mentioned that as well, if the business is, is listening for this podcast as well, and then they just kind of realize they need to kind of reevaluate as well. And I know that a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners, sometimes they might read it, but they might only understand 50% yeah. of actually what they're reading. Is that a way that maybe there is a consultation that you provide that could yeah, help? Yeah, I mean, a very simple way of doing it. There's a website I've set up called protectmyturnover.co.uk. Mm-hmm. Protectmyturnover.co.uk. Very simple there. There's a short video where I tell a story, and there's a contact form at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Just fill in the contact form. I'm happy to have a no-obligation chat to see whether there are holes that need plugging, and what you can do about it. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah. I think I think there is quite a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs, especially when we're looking when we look into the market now that a lot of businesses are starting. I mean, and we got at least three, four clients that they start the business pretty much around COVID, yeah. around COVID nineteen, and now yeah. they're making over half a million pounds turnover. Some of yeah. them are making two million pounds turnover. Yeah. So they really scale quite fast. Yes, and I think. What happened is when business scales too fast, that is a great thing. There is some things that might be missed. The basics get overlooked. Yeah, he's, he's get overlooked. I told you a story before we started recording about the, the company where I've been asked to look at a contract mm-hmm. because a company is thinking of taking on an employee, but it knows that he's got some sort of covenants in his contract. So they said, will you look at it for me? Mm-hmm. Tell me whether or not you think it's enforceable. And it clearly is not enforceable. Now, the company where the employee currently works has gone from... Um, from in naught to five years has gone to a turnover of 29 million. So they turn over 29 million a year and their contracts do not protect the company. So there are businesses out there, big and small, that are unprotected. But certainly, if a business is starting out and it's one that you know is going to scale quickly, there will be key people who, who they take on as members of staff who will be an integral part of that business that if they lost would cause major damage because they could just go and set up on their own again. They know how to do it. Yes. They've been there since the start. 
so yeah it's really important brilliant 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 Alan, is there any other subject that you feel like it could be off value? <laughs> no. There are many subjects, but we've only got a limited amount of time to do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's a particularly important area at the moment, I think. I think the country's about to go into a recession, it's quite clear. We owe so much money as a country. Yes. There are industrial disputes all over the place, people demanding wages. We're seeing rising inflation. Yeah. it's going to be a difficult time for business I think I, I totally agree with you because um, I mean uh, we, we've been having a conversation that mm. we're looking to a new office but the prices have jumped almost 50% yeah. Yeah. In, in less than a year in less than a year yeah, yeah. and um, and also with because I do understand I mean with the with the cost of living been increasing so much and then there is so many things that's the, I mean the prices of everything have increased and then we understand that employees normally they need also to have a better salary in order just to kind of survive but then it's, it's going to be very tricky for business to increase the cut you know I mean the yeah. bill straight away oh, for yeah. the clients so you want to increase the price to customers but yes. customers can't afford can't afford so it's, it's going to be a, a quite challenging quite challenging yeah. things for quite a lot of business. I think we're going to see quite a lot of upturn in insolvencies. I think insolvency practitioners, in fact, I know they're getting busy. I spoke to someone and they said, yeah, mm -hmm. there are signs we're going to be very busy. Where businesses fail. Wow. If you have to give advice, just a general advice for business mm. to, to protect themselves mm. and to to prepare themselves mm. for these sometimes difficult times that mm. we have in our head, what do you say? What will be your five or three tips? It's, it's got to be speak to people who know. It's who, not how. Speak to people who know. Get advice from experts, whether it's your accountant or your lawyer or some business consultant or get a business coach. Just take advice and take it early. I think that's the best the best tip uh, I could give you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think going back to what we discussed, just network as well. <laughs> network, yeah. Who not? Again, who, not how. It's people will help you. The right people will help you. It's knowing who to ask. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Alan, once again, thank you so much for coming for our podcast. Uh, uh, I think we share quite a lot of value today as well. Okay. We're looking forward to in the next couple of months having you back in the podcast and maybe talk about a different subject. Um, and yeah, thank you so much and we'll see you again. Thanks for having me, Nikolai.